I always say about the book when people ask, you know, is it real? The facts may not be, but the feeling behind them is. It's so funny recording an audiobook after you've written it. When you write it, you don't have to think about your sentences that are a hundred words long and take three lungs full of air. The book is written actually from a place of true depth. It's about transformation from the inside out. So in order to read it, I needed to go there. Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet writer and director Hazel Hayes, writer and historian Rebecca Solnit, and marriage and family therapist Catherine Woodward Thomas. These authors have each written books about love, albeit very different kinds. Hear Hazel Hayes on how she came to write a love story in reverse. Rebecca Solnit on discovering George Orwell's little-known passion for roses. And Catherine Woodward Thomas on overcoming pain and well-worn patterns to bring greater love into our lives. Enjoy. Hi, this is Hazel Hayes, author of Out of Love. I wrote this book because I was fascinated by the nature of relationships breaking down. I think we see so much in the media, so many films and TV shows and read so many other books about people meeting and people getting together and the happily ever after and how it begins. And we don't often see a lot of how it ends or sort of why it ends. So that's why it was interesting to me. It was that question that I think we've all asked ourselves in the wake of a breakup, you know, were we happy? Was it ever worth it? You know, when you're when you're really in a lot of pain, you're trying to justify it and you're trying to figure out why you're in pain, whether it was worth it. So that's why I wanted to work backwards from when this couple broke up and sort of almost <laughs> re-ravel the tapestry of them and go back to a time when they did work and unpick all the reasons why it didn't work and all the reasons before they even met that affected their relationship. If I had to describe recording my audiobook in one word, it would be emotional. I always say about the book when people ask, you know, is it real? The facts may not be, but the feeling behind them is. So, you know, events will have been changed and places and people and details like that. But the feeling behind each chapter, whether that's about grief or motherhood or sexuality or trauma or abuse, you know, some pretty sort of heavy topics in there. Mental health as well as one that we explore. Yeah, the feeling behind all of that is very, very real. And so you're sort of going there, particularly when you perform for an audiobook really feel it, really see it in your head, really be there. And and I was trying to do that as much as possible, but that is often putting myself back in situations that were extremely emotional for me at the time and that I'm still processing and working through now. So yeah, it just brought up a lot of old stuff. I realised that I maybe shouldn't have written in so many sentences in foreign languages. <laughs> uh, there's some French in there. There's some Italian and I really, really struggled on those and I'm already sort of cringing at the thought of French and Italian people <laughs> reading those sections and being like, what is she talking about? There was also some slight differences between the UK and the US version. In particular, <laughs> the favourite of the week has been toward and towards 
because I would say towards or afterwards or backwards with an S on the end. And this text had been sort of USified so that every towards became toward. And when I was just like in the flow of it, I would keep saying towards. And it just sort of became an in-joke that I would catch myself and be like, toward! <laughs> I'd actually, I'd quite like a compilation of all the times I freaked out at myself saying towards. But for the first half of the book, I thought I was just saying it wrong my whole life. But we did figure out that there is actually a difference between the UK and US version. I think I'm most proud that I didn't have a mental breakdown during the recording. Quite happy with that. <laughs> it turned out my sound engineer, lovely Ivan, had actually also been through a breakup quite recently. So he was really feeling it and I could see him on a screen the entire time during particular scenes sort of nodding along or or smiling or even at one point like actually crying during one of the more emotional scenes. So I was extremely emotional, as I've said, and I was really trying to go there and feel the feeling and express that so that the audience, you know, the listener can really hear that and my voice can really hear the feeling behind it. But then having to sort of stop just before the line of actually letting it go and just breaking down into tears. So I'm quite proud that I was able to sort of give, I hope, give that feeling, but without completely losing it. Oh, if I wasn't reading this audiobook, it would be Saoirse Ronan in a heartbeat. In fact, fun fact, I would listen to her <laughs> every morning because I'm living in London now. I've sort of lost my accent a little bit. So whenever I'm doing something like this that's going to be recorded, I watch videos of Saoirse Ronan <laughs> just speaking in her lovely Dublin accent so that I can kind of get mine back. And I actually met her once and told her that I did that, which is a really strange thing for her to hear, I'm sure. And now listen to a clip from my audiobook. So this is how I knew, when I met Theo for dinner, that it was already over. Not only had he taken enough essentials for a new life without me, he hadn't even prepared me for it. My mother had flown to London to be there for me when I got home from seeing him that evening because, although she wouldn't explicitly say it, she knew it was over too. While I was getting ready, she asked what I would do if Theo wanted to work things out, and I told her I'd be open to it, because there was a part of me that still hoped we could, but the thought of getting back together also created a quiet unease within me, which I realise now is why she asked. Hello, this is Rebecca Solnit, author of Orwell's Roses. On the one hand, I'd been thinking for years that I was looking for an encounter that would be so rich and meaningful and reverberate so broadly through culture and politics I could write a whole book about one encounter. On the other hand, it all happened all of a sudden when I actually ran into the rose bushes Orwell allegedly planted and I had never anticipated that it wasn't going to be an encounter between two people, but between a man and some plants. But so it was, and it all happened on November 2nd, 2017, in the most exciting and unanticipated encounter with those rose bushes, which I now know 
may or may not have been planted by Orwell, but which were very decidedly introduced to me at the time as Orwell's roses and are certainly where he planted roses and lived. And certainly he was a man who was passionate about roses and flowers and plants and gardening and the natural world, which I didn't know until after I met the roses and began to look much harder at Orwell and who he was and found in Orwell nothing had prepared me to meet nothing written about him, nothing in the atmosphere around him, which portrayed him as a very grim, pessimistic, joyless, miserable curmudgeon just telling us that we're all doomed and 1984 was waiting to descend upon us like some sort of avalanche of badness. Oh, it's so funny recording an audiobook after you've written it. When you write it, you don't have to think about your sentences that are a hundred words long and take three lungs full of air. You don't think about the fact that you were always one of those weird kids who knew how to spell everything but pronounce nothing because you learned words by reading, not by talking. You know, you find out how many words you never actually knew how to pronounce. You vow to become Ernest Hemingway and write entirely in words of one syllable or less. And then you just read the damn thing and meet your book in a whole new way. It's both wonderful and terrifying and sometimes mortifying when you think, why did I do it that way? There are so many English words that have interesting pronunciations that I'm not sure I'm willing to try again, but there was a big learning curve, if it was a curve, because I may go back to mispronouncing a lot of those words, and I'm sure English people will be cursing me anyway, because I am an American. And actually, as I build this Renan sentence, I would never write, but this is how we speak, one of the terrifying things I should add about recording the audiobook is that in my female California voice, I've recorded a great deal of words written by a male English person, namely George Orwell, and I just had to get over that and let George Orwell have the pleasure or horror of being this California girl. I hope what's present in the audiobook and is present in the written book as well is what was so exciting for me, which is to find out that Not much in print had really told us who George Orwell was, nor did the sort of vaporous image of him as Mr. Gloom and Doom tell us much about him, that there was this whole other side to him as a passionate gardener. And I never wanted that to be cute or like, oh, he loved plants, it's very sweet. It felt like he had a very fierce attachment to nature that not only made him much more political philosopher for our time when the natural world is profoundly imperiled with climate change and extinction and the rest. But it also answered some of the questions I've long had as a political activist and a person who lives in the political world myself. What role do pleasure and beauty live in our political lives? How do we make ourselves sustainable activists, not throwing ourselves into what can be the difficult work of facing the worst things on earth and trying to change them? What is the thing that maybe you have to do that doesn't look like doing it at all, but is why you can do this very important work? How do we live our lives? How do you live a life as a writer? So there's so many things about what Orwell was doing as a passionate gardener that I felt addressed huge questions for each of us about how we live our lives, about the politics of our time, about the meaning and value and importance of the natural world, and so much more. Ah, my dream narrator for this book, 
You know, I can't say Orwell himself, after being shot through the neck in the Spanish Civil War, he was said to have a very whispery voice, and I suspect he had a fairly posh English accent that would sound very unlike me. Actually, I was afraid of people overacting, so I'm kind of relieved to read things myself. With my feminist books, I was worried that they would become very angry and dramatic-sounding, when I'm a pretty calm speaker, even when I'm talking about atrocities and abuses. One thing I learned from being in the radio studio with a truly horrible radio host who shall remain unnamed is that you want the emotion to belong to the listener, not the speaker, the reader, not the writer. And this radio guy felt like he was using up all the emotion in the room. He was foregrounding his own emotion. And I always feel there's a way to convey that the emotion belongs to you who are listening or reading, not to me, because it's not about me. Hopefully. Not with something like this book anyway. Maybe in my memoirs, sometimes it is about me. But I still want to leave space for the reader to have their own emotions or the listener to have their emotions. So I like a pretty calm reading style. Driving to Utah, I listened to Suzanne Simard's Finding the Mother Tree, and the person I was traveling with at first was disappointed that she was reading it, but I was so glad. She is a great scientist who made extraordinary breakthroughs relevant to Orwell's Roses about the underground network of fungi, as she pronounces it, that mean that a forest is a communicating, collaborative, mutual aid system, not a bunch of isolated individualistic trees in sad capitalist competition for resources. But it's also a very personal book, so to hear her talk herself about being treed by a grizzly bear, about her brother dying, was really moving. And also she's very humble and very Canadian, and that lovely Canadian accent is really a pleasure. I love regional accents. I love southern accents, Texas accents, twangs, drawls, Scottish burrs. And my mother had a Queen's accent, I should add. So Suzanne Samard, Finding the Mother Tree, which is both a fantastic book and just an extraordinary thing to listen to. It's an epic. There's an experience I've sometimes had of reading a novel in a place opposite to it. I've read War and Peace twice in my life, once in Guatemala, once in Japan. And the contrast is always really interesting. I've read books about the Arctic in the desert. Probably I've read books about the desert in the near Arctic. And there's often something about driving while listening to something of being in two places at once that can be magical. Although sometimes a place is so great, I don't want to be anyplace else and I just want silence. Or since I'm usually driving through the Southwest, maybe some country music, you know, because twangy guitars and great red sandstone mesas and canyonlands generally go pretty well together. I remember listening to Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. You're in this British childhood in what feels like a very interior space of a little boy's difficult psychic life and a forested lane and these two magical women and then this kind of cosmic magical world beyond the world. And I was driving from Idaho through the Nevada desert to California. And it was such an interesting two places at once experience. And now, please listen to a clip from my audiobook, and thank you so much. In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. 
I had known this for more than three decades and never thought enough about what that meant until a November day a few years ago when I was under doctor's orders to recuperate at home in San Francisco and was also on a train from London to Cambridge to talk with another writer about a book I'd written. It was November 2nd, and where I'm from, that celebrated as Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Hi, this is Catherine Woodward Thomas, author of Calling in the One, Seven Weeks to Attract the Love of Your Life. I wrote my book initially, and I've rewritten it now. The first release was 2004. The second release is 2021. But I wrote it initially because I myself had suffered so deeply in the area of love. And even though I'm a licensed psychotherapist, it was actually my own personal biggest challenge was to have good relationships. And I was able to overcome many of the patterns that I'd had that I'd felt stuck with for years. And I simply wanted to share what I had done to manifest a miracle in my own life to help others do the same. And I rewrote the book because I had the opportunity to work with so many beautiful souls over the years that I learned a lot about the process. And so the second book, I tried to keep the integrity of the first and the clarity and the the beauty of the process, but I also up-leveled it because I learned a ton of things about what really worked for people and what was most helpful. If I had to describe what it was like to record the audiobook in one word, meditative. I was able to go deeply into the process. I mean, the book is written actually from a place of true depth. It's about transformation from the inside out. So in order to read it, I needed to go there so that my voice would carry the resonance of the material. So it was quite beautiful and restful and I kind of had my own awakening as I was reading it again because it is a book about transformation. It is a book about healing. It is a book about possibilities. And it is a book about manifesting miracles. So the question is, did I have any problem pronouncing anything as I moved through the book? And I will say that in the book, I include a lot of quotes. And I came across a word that I had never seen before. And I don't even know if I can say it now unquestioningly. (laughs) It's unquestioning I-N-G after that and then Lee. So I never quite figured that one out. I'm really excited about the opportunity to read my work for the listeners because it's a very intimate exchange. I think the voice is intimate and the book itself, the material of the book, really goes to the deeper levels of our own inner thoughts that we don't normally share with people. And it kind of gets on the inside of the listener. And I feel that I really had a sense of the listener as I was moving through the material and I felt really connected. And so I'm excited now to have the listener have that experience of being connected with me as well. If I was not able to narrate this book, my ideal dream person would, of course, be Meryl Streep. She's just one of my favorite all-time actresses, and I can listen to her forever. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. 
This is what being single was like for me. I'm an attractive, charismatic woman, petite with a curvy figure, olive complexion, and unruly dark hair. I love people fervently, and I have a profound need to be deeply connected to them. I loathed being alone in life. Yet by the time I reached my 40th birthday in 1997, I was a true blue card-carrying member of one of the fastest-growing groups in America, the Never Marrieds. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening. For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash next listen.